Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 54 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am pleased to welcome Mark Pinsono, a professor of astronomy at The Ohio State University in Columbus and an expert on stellar open clusters. Pinsono received his PhD in astronomy from Yale University in 1988, a AAAS fellow and an Ohio State distinguished scholar. His research involves the structure and evolution of stars. But today, we'll primarily be discussing the Pleiades, the Hyades, and the nearby stellar open clusters in our own Milky Way galaxy. Pensano joins us from Aspen, Colorado. Mark, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Uh, thank you very much for giving the opportunity to speak here. First off, uh, we all know we live in a grand spiral galaxy, the Milky Way. But there are, uh, are two basic groupings of stars in our galaxy. Globular clusters, which make up what is basically known as a group of population two stars, which are in groupings that are very dense and very ancient, and that are usually fi uh, found at high galactic latitudes. And then stars in the so-called disk of our galaxy, of which our sun is a part, which are known as population one stars. Well, the globular clusters are a really interesting relic of formation. There are also a very thin population of stars, which we call the halo, which are no, which are not tightly bound, which are kind of orbiting around the galaxy in all directions. These would make kind of a ball in the middle of the galaxy, if you will. Um, and then there's, but all of those stars, we believe, or almost all of them, are very ancient, like the globulars. Uh, and then there is the disk where the sun lives, and there's also other things like open clusters that live in that disk. So can you just give us a kind of a parenthetical definition of open cluster? Okay, um, an open cluster would be a, um, we, we, it's a group of stars that are bound together by their own gravity. So in other words, that their, their gravity holds them together, um, so they don't all just float off away and become just individual stars orbiting the galaxy. So it's a gravitationally bound um, group of stars um, orbiting in the disk of the galaxy. That's, that's basically the working definition of an open cluster. The sun has been orbiting around the galaxy. Um, it basically takes about 250 million years for a star like the sun to go around the galaxy. And it's been orbiting, it's almost you know, a little under 5 billion years old, 4.568 billion years old. Um, and that means that it's been going around the galaxy quite a few times. And since it probably escaped its birth environment a long time ago, we, it's actually therefore very hard to point to a specific group of stars that where the sun came from. And that's because that group of stars may not even exist anymore. All of those stars may have actually just dissolved and become part of the general population of the Milky Way. But there are a few kind of clues we can use, a few hints we can use that tell us something about what the environment around the sun was like. One, as you've mentioned, is that we believe stars are not born alone. They're born with friends. And so the sun was probably born um, with a large group of other stars. Um, the second is that the sun, we can measure how much iron and silicon and everything else that the sun has. We call this the metal content. Um, and when we look at that, we know that the sun has a certain metal content. 
um, which is reasonably high. And it's um, it. And if you look at what it would have been like in the galaxy, you know, four and a half billion years ago, this means that the sun was probably born a bit closer to the center of the galaxy than it is today, because four and a half billion years ago, stars that were born closer to the galaxy had kind of the amount of heavy elements that the sun does. So we think it was born closer to the center than it is today. And then the last bit is some kind of clue about the environment. And here's where there's actually a really neat connection um, with the study of meteorites. And that is that when the sun was originally formed, it collapsed. It was a giant gas cloud. It collapsed. And inside that collapsing gas cloud, you basically formed little dust grains. And these dust grains then formed rocks that became the Earth, and Jupiter, and everything else. But some of these rocks um, actually ended up sticking around in the form of meteorites, and they preserve a kind of a fossil record of the early history of the solar system. And when you look at these rocks and break them down, they show a very characteristic pattern that they have the byproducts of radioactive decay. So in other words, there was something that happened near the sun when it was born that produced a large amount of radioactive elements being produced. We think the only way this can happen is with an exploding star called supernova. And so this is a kind of evidence, almost a smoking gun evidence, that there was some other big star not too far from the sun where it was born that exploded and kind of seeded our solar system with some of these elements. And you can also make other arguments about, for example, the fact that we have a solar system and so we could not have been really, really close to other stars. And so that kind of does point to a, probably a kind of an open cluster environment. Now, um, are you, are, so are you saying it's typically thought uh, that mm -hmm. uh, the sun is a product of a molecular cloud of, of yeah, a second yeah. or third generation yeah. Uh, yeah. star? So in other words, it had come about in a molecular cloud that was already fairly heavy metal rich so now are Correct. you saying that the circumstellar nebula the protosolar nebula from which our sun formed mm -hmm. and which our solar system formed was not only metal rich in, in and of itself but there was a nearby supernovae which could have additionally provided seed material for from which our planets could have formed it's very, very likely, and then that's based upon these these kind of very, very um, unusual things. Because normally, if you just had the gas and dust that made the sun that was just sort of sitting in interstellar space, anything radioactive would decay very quickly, and of course, it would never have made it into the meteorites in the first place. And so the only way you can get something radioactive to be incorporated in the meteorites is to have the radioactive stuff be produced basically right at the same time the sun was forming. So give us a thumbnail sketch of the type cluster that our own sun may have formed in. Uh, was it mostly made of, of low-mass red dwarf M spectral type stars? Because that's our local neighborhood today, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, Or was it made of a mixture like the Pleiades, stars that ran the spectral gamut from hot blue and white, OB and A, to FGK, to M, and then even L dwarfs, very low mass stars and then Y and T dwarfs and the L Y and T designations are still in use today. And, and these are basically designated as what Brown dwarf fail stars. Yes, that's correct. Yes, that's correct. So, so these, these Brown dwarfs are actually something that's been a kind of a really interesting wrinkle in our study of stars. 
Um, we believe that what happens is when stars form, as you alluded, you basically just have a giant lumpy cloud of gas. And this lumpy cloud of gas just collapses. And when it collapses, um, each of the individual lumps uh, kind of um, separates out, distinguishes itself, and the individual lumps collapse and they fragment into littler things. It's kind of like a, a little a structure. So you start with big structures and they make smaller ones and everything fragments down until the smallest lumps you end up with, the smallest things you make, are characteristically, like you said, the mass of things like stars. But when you make these things... Of course, the lump of gas has no way of knowing whether in the future it's going to be big enough to be a star or not. Okay. And so, right, right, you know, uh, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, some of these fail, right? So, in other words, some of them condense, they condense out, they might start nuclear reactions for a little bit, but they're so small that they can't keep their heat. They basically fizzle. We call these brown dwarfs. These would be things that would be somewhere between like 15 and 85 times the mass of Jupiter, something like that. And, um, and it appears that they actually form pretty commonly. They're very hard to find because they cool off so quickly. Um, and that's why young environments like the Pleiades, as you mentioned, are a great place to find them because the Pleiades is young enough where you can still see them. They have. Now, in terms of what the sun was born with, as I mentioned, at least some of the stars the sun was born with had to be big enough to explode. And so that means it probably was a cluster very much like the Pleiades, or even maybe a little bit bigger than the Pleiades, uh, which had these very massive stars. But also, as you mentioned, in our solar neighborhood, um, most of the stars that we see are little stars, these very faint M dwarfs, as we call them. And that was probably true of the birth environment of the sun we, as, we, as we see it. So in other words, the sun was, a, was more massive than the normal star, but there were a few that were way bigger than it, and it was kind of probably in a medium-sized environment. I believe the first brown dwarf was actually found in the Pleiades, right? I, um, I believe that's correct. I think um, that the people were searching in the star cl young star clusters, and that's the first place they found them. And the, the term yeah. brown dwarf actually dates back to 1975, and famed uh, SETI uh, radio searcher Jill Tarter in a 1975 uh, thesis, kind of coined she, the the brown dwarfs were theor, were known to be a theoretical entity. They were not had not been discovered yet uh, yeah. via observation, and she just uh, came up with this idea that well they they uh, are not really a true star, so they're kind of like fall somewhere between planet and star. And there and early on in the in the history of planet hunting, and I cover this in my book uh, Distant Wanderers, mm -hmm. brown dwarfs were hotly debated at scientific conferences. You know, is this a star? Is it a planet? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I, I think I, I would call it basically a, a kind of a failed star is kind of a fair way to characterize, I think. Um, but in and of itself, like Jupiter is actually, you could, if you wanted to have a real stretch, you could say that Jupiter is actually a failed star, right? Because the only thing yeah. that's keeping it from deuterium burning is its mass. Well, yeah, and, and that's why I think that astronomers like to have this distinction between kind of a brown dwarf, because if you're 15 Jupiter masses or higher, you'll ignite some nuclear reactions somewhere, right? So you will at least ignite the diffusion of the easiest things to burn at about 15 Jupiter masses. That's deuterium? And that's deuterium. Okay. And so that's a good, useful kind of a minimum space. And, um, and then after that, um, up to 85 Jupiter masses, uh, you would then actually uh, see that for 85 Jupiter masses, 
you would you could then actually ignite hydrogen and then be a stable burning star. So it would be a so-called um, main sequence hydrogen uh, burning star. Exactly. Um, and I, I should note that there were some claims that were a little bit earlier that, that people found brown dwarfs as companions to other nearby stars by just taking pictures of them. So I think the actual real first brown dwarf was, I think, a, um, discovered um, as a companion to a nearby M dwarf, a nearby very, very faint star. But, um, but, but, the, uh, but the population of them in the Pleiades that was discovered was really important. And the reason why these things were so controversial, so hard to uh, study, is there's kind of a quirk of, um, of stellar uh, properties, which means that the lowest mass star is actually almost exactly the same size as Jupiter. So all of these things, Jupiter, the brown dwarfs, the very low mass stars, all of these things are pretty much the same size. You can't tell them apart by size. The only thing you can tell them apart by is temperature. Um, but many of the brown dwarfs, as I mentioned, are kind of sneaky, right? Because what happens is they start out burning nuclear fuel, which means they look like they might be a star. And then later on, they just cool off and they don't. And so it's surprisingly a tricky kind of subtle thing to kind of pin these things down in terms of where they actually are. Right. And Jill Tartar, uh if memory serves me, chose the term brown dwarf because brown is a composite color. It's not a primary yeah. color. And actually, if you were going to look at a brown dwarf, if you had a brown dwarf in front of you, they would appear kind of a reddish, a reddish hue, not brown yes. at all. As I quoted you this week in a Forbes article, you noted that the sun actually formed in a cluster that was not gravitationally bound, but much yeah. more loose. Not unlike yeah. the Orion Nebula, which yeah. is the cluster of stars some 1,300 uh, light years away at the bottom of Orion's sword. <laughs> I, I mean, um, Orion is a bit weird because there's a lot of, a lot of little clumps in Orion, uh, and they're all kind of simmering and forming stars. And so it's kind of a collection of little star-forming regions, that, that whole area. It's not just one, like, one very super dense thing. The two clusters that we're going to be talking about most today are the Pleiades, which we've already done a little bit. An open cluster located in the northwestern portion of the constellation of Taurus, which consists of some 2,200 stars. I mean, you see different figures on this, and I guess this is a, a moving target, the number of, of stars, but it's 23, 21, what, whatever. Of all types, from bright, hot, blue, B-spectral type stars that make up the iconic seven sisters on down to solar type stars to lower mass M dwarfs, the red dwarfs that we, uh, which our sun is surrounded by here locally. And then even stellar brown dwarfs, which we just talked about the Pleiades. Well, um, um, well, I mean, the Pleiades is, an, is a cluster we've known about for a very long time. Um, and it's kind of a special system for a lot of reasons. If you look at star, most of the star clusters in the galaxy are actually pretty far away. And that means you can't actually see the individual stars with the naked eye. Some things that are very, very close, like the Hyades cluster, um, you see members of the cluster, but it's actually kind of hard to work out exactly which of the stars are members because they're kind of spread out over a pretty big area. And so there's really only a couple of systems that are very special. The Pleiades is one. I think the Beehive or Praesipi is another where with you know, good sight, you can kind of make out that there's a distinct group of stars, kind of a lump of stars. 
And that means that that these stars, when you're searching them with more detailed instrumentation like astronomers have, turn out to kind of stick out. It's really, really easy to pick these up. They're at a very special distance. There's a lot of them at almost the same distance. They're very packed, closely tight together. They're kind of moving together in the galaxy. All these things make it possible to find these stars, which means that the Pleiades was one of the very, very first clusters that astronomers were able to um, study in great detail. I have seen the Pleiades. They're not, I mean, I can easily spot Orion in, in the winter sky and the yeah. sword and the Orion Nebula and Betelgeuse. But is it just me in my eyesight or is it uh, that the Pleiades are not as easy to see as Orion? Well, well, um, yeah, yeah. But Orion is one of the most Orion, like the Big Dipper, is like one of the universal constellations in the sky. It's like it's like very, very bright stars, some of the very brightest stars in the sky, and so you can see it even in 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 pretty bright environments. It's actually kind of a sad thing that we have kind of have lost, I think, largely the 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 dark skies that let us see these things. So if you are in a moderately dark sky, it doesn't have to be kind of a remote region. But you can get, basically, if you can see the Little Dipper then you can see the Pleiades and it's very, very clearly a group of stars that are all clustered together. You can usually see like six of them. You either see none of them or six of them, basically. And uh, that's the kind of thing you would see in, an, in a kind of a darker sky uh, environment. This is very similar to something I do when I'm talking to students in my class. I will ask every one of my large lecture classes, 100 or more students, how many people have ever seen the Milky Way? And it's typically like five or six. But if you were in a moderately dark place, the Pleiades would actually be quite distinctly visible. There's a reflection nebula that actually surrounds the famous Seven Sisters, which I, I think only adds to their kind of magical mystery. Um, well, what happens is when stars form, we mentioned they, they form out of these giant dense clouds of gas, and they're kind of shrouded by little individual cocoons. And as the stars evolve, they kind of blow off the gas and dust. And, and usually after some tens of millions of years, most of the gas and dust in the, in the neighborhood has been cleared out by the heat and light from the stars that form in the cluster. Uh, but the Pleiades is in kind of a young area. There's other young things around it. That's most of what we believe is, is going on there. There's almost like a little cloud that's in front of the, the Pleiades. Um, and, and so that's that kind of explains why they have that particular appearance. So Sky and Telescope uh, noted that the Pleiades also appear three times in the Bible, uh, yeah. once in the book of Amos, Seek him that maketh the seven stars, and twice in the book of Job. And then in Homer's Odyssey, uh, the hero Odysseus uses the Pleiades as a navigational beacon, quote, Gladly did Odysseus spread his sail before the wind, while he sat and guided the raft skillfully by means of the rudder. He never closed his eyes, but kept them fixed on the Pleiades. Are you surprised that the Pleiades are so much a part of our global cultural history even today? No, no, I, I think not, because, because as you said, this is one of these things that would have been, before the invention of electric lights, kind of a universal piece of human heritage, right, until... We had, and when the, when the lights went out at night, basically what happened is everybody could look in the sky and everybody could see the same thing. And uh, and it being this kind of a touchstone, this kind of a, something that's very familiar, um, is actually really is actually a really powerful thing. And people in ancient times would have even used the position of these things as a kind of a, as a kind of a compass to give you directions, and also as a uh, as a kind of a clock to tell you what time of night it was when you could where the stars were. 
Your own research uh, involves the structure and evolution of stars with an emphasis on physical processes neglected in standard models. What do you mean by that? The study of stars you know, in detail goes back well more than 100 years, like to, um, to the early parts of the 20th century, uh, when people actually really characterized in precise detail the positions of stars um, at the very beginning. And in order to study stars, which are very far away, you actually necessarily have to make some assumptions. You have to assume some things. Now, the big assumption we all make is that basically the laws of physics as they are in the Earth apply to the stars. And so if you wanted to imagine um, a star like the sun, which has all this complicated stuff going on in it, you'd start out by saying, what's the simplest possible um, set of assumptions I could make? Well, you would assume the sun was a sphere. You assume it wasn't rotating. It didn't have any magnetic fields. It wasn't losing any mass. didn't have any companions, anything else. This is kind of like the really simple, we call that the standard model of stellar evolution. And to a remarkable extent, that theory is successful at predicting a lot of the properties of stars. But the real sun does rotate. It does have magnetic fields. It has all these other things going on. And those are the things that I study. Those extra processes that are not the simplest possible way of thinking about stars. So what are the three or four uh, primary science drivers for studying these open clusters? The biggest one is that open clusters give us a history of what stars are like at different times in their life cycles. Stars in many ways are like people. It's really easy to see young, to figure out who's young. It's really easy to figure out who's old. And it's kind of tough to date, figure out how old people are in the middle, right? Somebody who's you know, 30, 40, 50 doesn't look that different from each other compared to somebody who's one or two or 90, right? Um, and so um, star clusters are systems where we can figure out how old they are. And we can look at a young cluster, a middle-aged cluster, and an old cluster and say that's kind of like how stars change as they get older. So surveys indicate that 90% of open clusters dissolve less than yeah. 1 billion years after formation, while only a tiny fraction survive for the present age of the solar system, 4.6 billion years. Well, the, the galaxy is a pretty harsh environment. What's happening is these star clusters are bound, their gravity ties them to each other. Uh, but there are all sorts of ways in which stars can get pulled out of the star cluster. Um, what can happen, for example, is you go through a spiral arm. The spiral arm of the galaxy has a lot of mass. The extra mass kind of pulls it apart with tides, kind of stretches it. Um, and uh, Or you can pass by another nearby star. Stars can just in, bounce off of each other. They can interact with each other and get driven out of the system. And so there are all sorts of ways in which the um, that these clusters gradually start dissolving with time. In a way, this is kind of happens with things like the atmosphere of the Earth. It's slowly evaporating off into space. The, but the Pleiades are a gravitationally bound cluster. Yeah, uh, so what are the long-term implications if you were on a planet circling a star in a gravitationally bound cluster as opposed to at, from an astrobiological point of view for the evolution of life? Uh, how, how would you be impacted by living in a gravitationally bound cluster as opposed to one that was only loosely tied together like the Orion Nebula? Well, a dense cluster might actually be a dangerous place. The odds that another star gets really, really close to you are pretty good. And so if you're in a densely packed cluster where there's a lot of stars very close to each other, the odds that one of the stars decides to go through and like mess up the orbits of the planets is actually decently high. And so at some level, you are better off being in one of these loose associations or, or escaping from the cluster if you want to maintain life. 
But you also say that uh, the Pleiades it's our, it represent our closest way of studying what stars like the sun would have been yeah. like when our sun was only 100 million years old. Well, the idea is that if you wanted to, um, you can use a theory to try and predict like how stars change. Like when the sun was first born, it was like this, and when it got a little older, it was like that. And you'd make that prediction. Um, but what you'd like to do to test those theories out is you'd like to make sure that you actually can have a bunch of things where you really do see a snapshot in time where all these stars are the same age and where they're very young. And so the Pleiades is special because the Pleiades has been our basically gold standard uh, young system near the sun um, where we can be very confident that these stars are young because we still see the very hot, massive blue stars that, are, that only live a short time. Um, and where there's a lot of them, so we can see what all of the stars are. And so, in effect, we're seeing a snapshot of the stars, like the sun, and the stars are not going to be bothered by these close passages with other things. Um, it might actually be trickier to see planets in these star clusters. It's actually, people have looked, they found a few, but it may be harder. One major Pleiades puzzle involves the amount of lithium detected yeah. in the cluster's plethora of solar-type stars. And in the Pleiades, stars of the same mass appear to have different abundances of lithium, you told me. Yeah, the two most important properties of, of open clusters uh, for astronomers are that all of the stars are almost exactly the same age, and they're all born out of the same mix of elements. So your basic assumption, therefore, is that when I look at the Pleiades, pick any element on the periodic table, um, to first order, all those stars were born with the same amount of that element. They were born with the same amount of iron and the same amount of calcium because the clouds in the galaxy are pretty well mixed. And furthermore, these giant clouds collapse very quickly, so we think the stars are pretty much very close to the same age. Now, there are some interesting exceptions to that, like in the globular clusters, where they may have had multiple generations, but we don't believe that's true for open clusters. So whenever you see something where you look at a bunch of stars, and I measure the abundance of any element, and they're not all the same, then that's just telling you that something weird is going on. There's some reason why those stars are destroying or producing that element in differing amounts. Okay, so that's a really important uh, test of stellar theory. Now, lithium is really easy to destroy the inside of stars because it has relatively few, um, it's a relatively light species. It only has three protons. And that means it doesn't repel other species as much as heavy things like iron. And so lithium is very easy to wipe out. Um, and so it's not a surprise that lithium is destroyed. But again, in a standard model of a star, all one solar mass stars would destroy exactly the same amount of lithium in the exactly the same amount of time. There's nothing to distinguish. And so whenever we see a range of lithium abundances, that's telling you there has to be something that's different, something that made a difference between them that actually made them um, evolve differently. And the only really good candidate we can come up with is the fact that some stars appear to be born very fast spinning, and fast-spinning things usually have really strong magnetic fields. And other stars appear to be born really slow-spinning and have weak magnetic fields. And so the hypothesis is that it's something to do with that that has produced these lithium differences. You told me that these magnetic fields are so strong that they are actually physically changing the size of the star. Magnetic fields concentrated into spots can suppress turbulence, cause feedback that puffs these stars up by about 10%. 
but you also say that you and colleagues are still puzzled over as to why only some of the stars in the Pleiades have this kind of inflation. Yeah, because the idea here is that um, whenever you have a really, really, really strong magnetic field, all of the particles in, in the outer layers of a star are very, very hot. And that means they almost all have their electrons stripped off. So everything is electrically charged. And whenever you have charged things, charged things have a tendency not to want to cross magnetic field lines. And so as a result, um, whenever you have these concentrated bundles of magnetic fields, like we call them star spots and stars or sunspots in the sun, there's a tendency to have the turbulence kind of go around them instead of through them. And so if you were to cover a lot of the surface of a star with these star spots, it's like just throwing a blanket over, you know, half the surface of the star. The same amount of heat has to get out. It just can't get out there. And so the star has to puff up to carry all the extra heat that's been blocked by these spots. And that's the hypothesis of this, we call this radius inflation. But when we look at these young stars that have the really, really heavy star spots, they're almost a thousand times brighter in X-rays. And so if you had stars that could actually maintain this really intense X-ray flux, um, then in fact these stars could actually be, um, be quite harsh environments. And um, red dwarfs, as you call them, M dwarfs, not only are super, super heavily spotted, but they stay heavily spotted for a really, really, really long time. They take a long time for their magnetic fields to get weak. And so that combination makes many astronomers, including me, actually kind of quite worried about the possibilities for life in these cases because with such high x-ray fluxes for such long periods of time it may actually prove to be quite challenging to keep your planet with an atmosphere and to keep it healthy but before we leave the pleiades um do you could you tell us actually where you where to look uh if you want to try to spot them um, I actually find it kind of easiest to think of um, Taurus, the bull, has a kind of a giant V shape, um, which is kind of the head of Taurus. Uh -huh. That's actually the Hyades cluster. And Pleiades is kind of off, just very close to that. So that's kind of what I use as kind of my marker to try and find it. They're very close to each other in the sky. As you mentioned, Hyades uh, is, uh, is your marker of the bull. And we're yeah. going to talk about that a bit now. Hyades uh, is the nearest, actually, uh, uh, even nearer than the Pleiades, and one of the best-studied open star clusters, located about 153 light years away. It consists of a roughly spherical group of hundreds of stars. How many make up the, the Hyades cluster? Uh, it, it's comparable to the Pleiades cluster. Um, it's a little bit trickier to find because things that are closer look bigger. And that means that at some level... The further, if you, the further away from the middle you look, the more stars you find, right? So people are still finding members of the cluster as a, re, as a, as a result of that. Um, since the Hyades is several times closer than the Pleiades, the stars appear more spread out, and, and getting a full count is a little bit more complicated. But the flip side of that is, particularly back when it was harder for us to measure the motions of stars, things that are closer to us move faster. And that means the Hyades members were very easy to find compared to almost anybody else. So it's one of the, again, with the Pleiades, it was actually one of the two, you know, first really super well-studied uh, star clusters. You note that over the next uh, few hundred million years, the Hyades will lose both mass and stellar membership as its brightest stars evolve off the hydrogen-burning main sequence. Yeah. And the dimmest stars kind of evaporate 
out of the yeah. cluster halo for someone for a distant progeny if anybody's still around uh, yeah, the Hyades yeah. will be which be will be much di- more difficult to observe right yeah correct correct and all of these most of these clusters will eventually just dissolve this is a process that just accelerates. You lose more things. You're not quite as tightly bound. You puff up. You lose even more things. You're not as tightly bound. And it just runs away eventually, and everything just floats off and joins the galaxy. So stars of the Hyades are actually more enriched in heavier elements than our own sun and other ordinary stars in the solar neighborhood. That's an interesting puzzle. And it's a puzzle that astronomers are really trying to understand, which is basically... Um, how the heavy element contents, how the amount of iron and things like that changes with time in the galaxy and with place. If you wanted to think of a really simple model, your simple model would be stars that are, the, the older a star is, the less heavy elements it had, the fewer generations of exploding stars. So you start out at low abundance, you go high. If you wanted another simple thing, you would basically say, well, gee, basically in the center of the galaxy, there was a lot of gas. So this this kind of nuclear clock should have been running faster. So the center galaxy should have had the first stars and they kind of should have built up their abundance the quickest. And so you can kind of think of this as being kind of like two things that stars are just getting more metal rich as they're getting old, as they're as the galaxy gets older. And they are more metal rich towards the middle and less metal rich towards the edge. Now, the galaxy plays tricks on us, though, because stars move. And so stars kind of get scrambled. They move in and out in their orbits. And so the Hyades being um, pretty young, it can't have moved that far. So the Hyades is kind of telling us, you know, that star, it's kind of probably was born not terribly far away from where we are now. But it's a little bit more metal rich than everything else in the solar neighborhood. So it's a little bit of a puzzle. What's most uh, puzzling or interesting to you about the Hyades? Well, well, just as the Pleiades is kind of like our go-to for saying this is what a young star looks like, the Hyades is kind of our go-to for this is what kind of a, 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 young, a young adult star looks like, right? Uh, it's kind of calmed down. Most of the spots have died away. But the stars in the Hyades are kind of like 600 to 700 million years old, which actually, again, means that they, they kind of tell us about a very particular uh, kind of phase of evolution. So some of our most influential papers have been basically combining from 30 or 40 years ago would basically combine the Pleiades, the Hyades, and the Sun and use those to make a kind of a sequence of what the life cycle of stars look like. So what about the Beehive Cluster? You you kind of mentioned that earlier on in the podcast, in the episode. Uh, yeah. It's in the constellation of Cancer, and it's also yeah. one of the nearest open clusters to Earth. Ptolemy described it as a, quote, nebulous mass in the breast of cancer. And then in 1609, Galileo first telescopically observed the beehive and was able to resolve it into 40 stars. How many uh, stars does it have that we know that it has today? And and so what's most interesting to you about the beehive? Um, um, Yeah, that's a great answer. It's a great question. Um, This cluster, we have the beehive or Prezipi, is basically about the same age as as the Hyades, but it turns out that because it's kind of packed together, um, we were able actually to um, study its membership. It's a little bit easier uh, because of that. And it turns out that when the uh, Kepler space satellite um, actually was able to take movies of it, um, 
NASA put up a Kepler satellites to look for planets, but the dirty secret of this is when you look for planets, uh, you can also basically take movies of stars and you learn how the stars change. And when they looked at this cluster, they got our best, sharpest picture of the rotation of the very lowest mass stars. We call these the M dwarfs. Uh, and the Prezepi data showed us a really surprising kind of pattern of how these stars rotate. And so if I wanted to pick something out about Prezepi, I'd say the fact that we can measure the rotation of you know, really large numbers of stars almost down to the very lowest mass limit of stars. And you're, you're using the term, is that a Latin term, Prezepi, instead of yeah. Beehive? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's a scientific term for the Beehive cluster, the Prezepi. Yeah, yeah, cluster. yeah. Um, uh, these clusters have many names. You could call it, you know, M44, <laughs> NGC, whatever it is. Or the Beehive or Prezepi. Yeah, so uh, I'm used to that one. That's what we call it in journal articles. So, but, yeah. <laughs> but you noted in the bio that you sent to me, and I, I, I didn't have this on my question, but I'm going to ask you. So you actually use the Kepler data to create the movies of these stars in motion. And yeah. that was, you use that to kind of analyze and model uh, the motions of these, the dynamics of these stars within the clusters. Tell us about that. Okay, well, you can use it to do that, but but actually what, what we spend much more time on is actually looking at how the stars vary, how they flicker or change with time. That's what I meant by, by movies. So their photometric so you, variation is what you're using. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so what happens is if these stars have spots, for example, a dark spot kind of moves into the front of the star and it makes the star look dimmer and then it goes around the back and the star gets brighter. The other thing we do is sometimes these stars are actually ringing like bells and when they ring like bells, they can set up kind of standing wave patterns. We call this seismology, kind of like geology. And these standing wave patterns can tell us about the internal structure of stars. Um, and so the Kepler satellite, because it was taking these snapshots of these things, for some kinds of stars, it was really great for measuring these rotation periods. And uh, and, uh, and the uh, Beehive cluster is one where we did exactly that, where we measured... Um, we measure, you know, many hundreds, almost a thousand uh, rotation periods of stars by looking, by using the satellite data. But unusually, uh, someone has written that the Beehive Cluster has uh, experienced, quote-unquote, mass segregation in which yes. uh, bright massive stars are more likely to be concentrated in the cluster's core, while dimmer and less massive stars populate its halo, sometimes called the, uh, the Beehive Corona. So why is this significant, and how does this structure differ from the Pleiades and the Hyades? Uh, yeah, the, this this is a very this is a known phenomenon. It's actually for the same reason that basically sugar sinks in a glass of iced tea, right? If you have things that are heavy, they're going to be moving more slowly on average than things that are light, and so the heavy things have a tendency to kind of to fall to the middle of these star clusters, and the light things have a tendency to go to the edge. And um, when I told you we had these many, many very low-mass stars in Praesepi that we discovered, they were almost all on the edges of the cluster. They were right around the edges of the cluster, and that made them easier to study. They weren't, uh, they weren't all kind of, um, they weren't all kind of uh, mushed together in one just big bright blob for the space satellite. So are we now able to study uh, open clusters in nearby galaxies like Andromeda or the large and small Magellanic clouds, and do they differ from what we see in our own galaxy? Um, yeah, yeah, those are those are fascinating systems to study. 
the Magellanic clouds, because they're smaller galaxies, have had fewer generations of stars. So when we study star clusters in the uh, in these satellite galaxies, the Milky Way, we get to basically see almost our own galaxy at an earlier stage of evolution when it didn't have as many heavy elements, as much iron, things like that. Um, and the Andromeda galaxy, uh, because we get to see it kind of face on, it's far away, so it would be very hard to find the very small stars in the Andromeda, Andromeda galaxy. But because we get to look at the whole galaxy at once, instead of looking through the goop, the dust and stuff in our own galaxy, it lets us see many of the star clusters in Andromeda actually, in some ways, more easily, the bright stars, than in our own galaxy. Um, so Andromeda is a terrific, terrific system for that reason. So what will the James Webb Space Telescope, the JWST, how is it going to affect the study of these nearby open clusters? Well, one of the things it'll be able to do is under the right circumstances, we'll actually be able to study these kind of elusive brown dwarf stars or possibly even giant planets around other stars um, with with very, very um, great detail because James Webb is basically designed to look at... Um, very, very low energy light, very far infrared light, the kind of light that's put out by things that are cold. And so as a result, it's actually kind of an ideal tool for, for studying these very, very cool these systems like the brown dwarfs where the star just isn't very hot at the surface. Um, so it'll be very, very great, very good. And what about the, uh, the LSST, the Vera Rubin telescope under construction in Chile, uh, which is going to be able to uh, look at the dynamics, the transient... Uh, uh, the transient nature of the sky. Is this going to help you? Yeah, the Rubin, the Rubin telescope will be tremendous because what it's doing is just like the, just like Kepler, it basically just scans the sky. Uh-huh. It basically scans the whole sky every three or four days. Okay. And so since it scans the whole sky every three or four days, you can take, you can take images, you can look for flashes, transients, like explosions, but you can also measure things like rotation rates of, uh, of stars. And so the Rubin telescope will give us a tremendous amount of detail. Um, and the biggest question, which is currently unresolved, is how much it's actually going to bother to look at the disk of our galaxy. That may be too complicated a region for it. So people like me are hoping they look at the disk as much as possible. So the sexiest topics uh, in astronomy and astrophysics these days, arguably, uh, seem to involve either astrobiology or extrasolar planets. Do you think that the study of stellar structure, star formation, and stellar dynamics kind of get the short shrift because of the preference towards astrobiology and extrasolar planets? Well, um, I'd actually argue that they're beautifully complementary. I mean, so for, I gave you an example for Kepler. Here's a satellite that people put up to look for planets. And as a side note, we learned an absolute ton about stars because the same images they were taking to look for planets just told us tremendous numbers of things about stars. And the other thing is that the uh, planet people would like to know, well, you know, is this, is this a good place for life? Well, they have to know about the star uh, to do that. And so I think in many ways, actually, the interest in planets has rejuvenated the field of the study of stars. It's been a terrific uh, impulse towards people wanting to understand stars better. And uh, the average person probably doesn't realize just how connected everything. We are literally stardust. I mean, that's not uh, hyperbole. Uh, And uh, they don't really appreciate, you know, just how everything stems from stellar formation. Yeah. And, And how interconnected all these topics in astronomies are. We use the same tools to study very different things. 
Uh, and sometimes you end up just finding things that are complete surprises. Some of the most exciting discoveries of the Hubble Space Telescope or of the Kepler satellite or other missions were not the things they were built to do. And, uh, and, the, and you also frequently inject new energy into some fields uh, by looking at others. That's actually one of the reasons why I've always loved astronomy uh, is precisely that um, I can work on radically different topics. I've written papers on the origin of elements in the Big Bang. I've written papers on stars, on planets, on everything else because it's all connected. So finally, what goes through your own head uh, when you kind of relax and you're out under a clear night sky and you have time to, to look up? Well, I mean, I, it just that the uh, it just that uh, the universe is just a marvelous and surprising place. At some level, it's kind of neat to be able to look up at the sky and not only just admire its beauty, but to know that you know you're looking at Cygnus, the Swan, and that's where the Kepler satellite looked. You look at the Pleiades, and you think about this being this kind of almost in the tip of an iceberg, this huge group of stars. It gives you a a sense of grandeur, a sense of kind of awe and wonder, and I still retain that. When I look at these things. And I guess the interesting thing about the Pleiades, the the seven sisters are so prominent and, and, and they're you know, extraordinarily beautiful. But the average uh, observer doesn't realize that there's a whole group of of uh, lower mass stars surrounding them. Um, which is why, if people are interested in these things, actually a pair of binoculars frequently is actually one of the best assists you can get to kind of amateur stargazing because. You look at these things and just these amazing things pop out, even just with binoculars that, that, that look very apparent. Mark, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Uh, sure, sure. Social media, um, I tend to believe, just leads to grief. So, I'm, <laughs> so I don't do much on social media. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but but uh, as far as email is concerned, um, MH Pincino, which is the spelling of my last name, um, at gmail.com is actually a great way to reach me, and I'd be delighted to have people contact me there. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Mark Pincino, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of these fascinating stellar open clusters. Now, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk here. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>